There's a missing 411 phenomenon in Japan, oftenly known as jihatsu, which roughly translate to the evaporated people. If you aren't familiar with this term, I'll save it as a surprise, but I'm willing to bet it's not what you think it is. It seems, no matter where you are in the world, whether it's North America or even Japan, the missing 411 type phenomenon continues to grow. Don't forget to slap that like button like the homeless alligator who owes you $15, subscribe if you're new as it helps the channel grow, and get ready for the Japanese missing 411, aka the evaporated people. Minami Shinomura our first case takes us to Hirogano Kogen Campground in Gujo, Japan. With just under 40 acres, it's the largest campsite in Gujo, and it has beautiful bungalows, cottages, and even a mountain villa. A post made to the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit details the tragic case of Manami Shinomura, a 10-year-old girl who disappeared while on a school outing with multiple chaperones and 84 of her 5th grade classmates. She had expressed her excitement for the trip to her big sister, Akumi, just the night before. Manami was the youngest of her three sisters who were raised by their single mother, Masuyo, and I was unable to find many details about her father. By all accounts, Manami was a sweet girl with a bright, cheerful personality who loved to sing and dance despite having endured many struggles in her short life. She was born with a heart condition that required surgery, and she had Down syndrome. Her poor health left her much smaller than the other children, and she required adult assistance with everyday tasks. That isn't to say she was lonely. Manami enjoyed going to school, and she had plenty of friends in her class. Her mother also stated she was very aware of her special needs and knew better than to wander off on her own, yet she never returned from her field trip. On July 23, 2009, the large group from Tokunamenishi Elementary School arrived at the campground, where they planned to stay for three days. While there, the campsite was closed to the public, giving the children free reign to experience nature to its fullest during their outdoor classes. The first night went off without a hitch, but day two is when things took a tragic turn. Sometime between 7.30 and 8 on the morning of July 24th, the school principal witnessed Manami and four friends passing by on their way to preview some tests or demonstrations scheduled for later that evening. Different sources translate exactly what this activity was, but the principal noted that Manami was lagging behind the group. And though he found the site concerning, he chose not to follow. It was only a short time later when her friends returned without her claiming she had vanished. The path they were on formed a loop. All you had to do was just simply follow it, and you would return to the starting point. But if she went off trail, danger lurked in practically every direction. There was a paved road nearby, the eastern slope had cliffs that even adults couldn't climb, and there was a stream to the west. It said the water was shallow at that time of year, but, as we all know, water doesn't have to be that deep for someone to drown. When teachers failed to locate Manami, the police were called and hundreds of volunteers came to assist in the search efforts. They were told to look for a little girl wearing a red name tag, light pink trousers, light blue athletic shoes, and a long-sleeved t-shirt with blue sleeves and a rabbit pictured on a white background. Her hair was in pigtails and she was estimated to be about 3 foot 9. 
Unfortunately, though, no trace of the little girl was ever found. There were no footprints, and none of her belongings have ever turned up. The lack of blood and fur quickly ruled out any sort of animal attack, and investigators were stumped as to how a small girl could go so far in such a little amount of time. When the official search efforts were officially called off, Manami's mother continued looking for her on her own for multiple months after. It's rumored a pair of shoes similar to her daughter's were found, but police determined they were not an exact match. The most popular theory behind the young girl's disappearance is that she simply fell behind the other classmates and wandered off into the wilderness. She wouldn't have been able to fend for herself in such a harsh environment, even if she avoided contact with wild animals altogether. The likelihood of finding safe food and water were practically non-existent. What I don't really understand is that if she was as frail as described, how did she wander off in the first place? Had she tried to venture off, or if the other children had dared her to do something dangerous, wouldn't she need to stop often to rest? Yet, somehow she eluded hundreds of searchers. Is it possible someone snuck into the campground despite being closed to the public? Everyone knew that only students and teachers were allowed. If someone else were there, they would have needed to escape detention completely. Or, well, I sure would love to know more about that principal, Hiroki Sawada. What if he did follow little Minami when he saw her trailing behind her friends? There are simply too many questions and not enough answers, much like our next case. Saya Minami The second disappearance I want to discuss took place in Matsudo, a city in Chiba Prefecture. Our focus is on seven-year-old first grader named Saya Minami. So, yeah, she coincidentally shares a name with the previous victim, but don't let it confuse you too much. On September 23rd of 2022, so very recently, Saya and her mother planned to visit a park near their home. They usually walk together, but on this particular Friday afternoon, Saya left the house alone, with nothing but her pink scooter at 11.30. According to Japan Times, her mother followed behind her about five minutes later, but by then it was already far too late. Saya was nowhere to be found. Her height is estimated to be just over three and a half feet tall. She has short black hair, and she was last seen wearing a pale pink t-shirt, blue shorts, and pink sneakers. Japan is known for its low crime rate, especially against children. So the case quickly received national attention as volunteers poured over the streets in search for the missing girl. Security cameras showed her within 900 meters of the park that she intended to meet her mother at before surveillance footage lost sight of her. She was riding her scooter at the time, but later that day, the scooter was discovered in a different park in the neighboring city, Nagarayama. I felt this to be a strong indication of foul play which was only fueled further the next morning when her socks and shoes were found on the banks of the Edo River over 300 yards away from that park. Crimes against children are simply that uncommon in their society. What does it say about our own that a predator is our first and only assumption? Saya's parents had previously searched the area where her socks and shoes were found, and they were certain the items were not there before. They could have been mistaken, of course, Air and water searches were also conducted, and teachers from Saya's school helped canvass the area, but no further signs of the missing girl were ever discovered that day. On Monday, her principal explained the tragic news in a school assembly, and a few days later, Saya's hat was found over a half a mile further downstream from where her shoes had been found. 
The hat had her name on it, and her parents appealed to the public for any information regarding their missing daughter. Tragically, it wasn't long after that that everyone's worst fears were confirmed. Sources are unclear on when, but sometime around September 27th, a child's body was found in the Edo River. After a typhoon passed through central Japan, a cyclist discovered a small floating body and called the authorities. The discovery was made just over nine miles away from where Saya's socks and shoes were located. Obviously, investigators' first thoughts were of the little girl. Even their clothes were similar. But they waited for DNA confirmation before making the official announcement on October 4th. An autopsy concluded that most likely the cause of death was to be that of a drowning. No major injuries were visible, and her time of death was placed between one to two weeks prior. A memorial was started near the site where mourners were able to bring flowers and small gifts. Whether Saya was suspected of running off or kidnapped remains unconfirmed by authorities, but it left the community too frightened to let their children go out alone for some time. It almost makes you wonder if those low crime statistics stem from the unwillingness to admit when certain cases have nefarious elements. Aside from her scooter somehow making it to an entirely different park, and the fact that her parents didn't initially see the clothing articles by the river, her parents also insist Saya hated getting her feet wet, and that she was not a big fan of water. She wouldn't have left her socks and shoes placed off to the side so neatly. Oh, and in case if you are wondering how Saya's mother could have let her walk to the park alone in the first place, again, it's really not that uncommon in Japan. Children even go shopping alone when the stores are close enough. Which, I mean, it's Japan, the stores are usually close enough. Matsudo City even boasts itself as one of the top places nationwide to raise a child. So this tragedy was particularly shocking for the residents. Mount Meissen For our final case, we are going to switch things up a bit and leave off on a happy ending. This one takes us to Mount Meissen in Tenkawa, a village in the Nara Prefecture, at over 1,600 feet above sea level. Mount Meissen is the highest peak of Miyajima Island. There are a number of Buddhist structures near the summit along with a spectacular view of the Seto inland along with a spectacular view of the Seto inland sea and Hiroshima city last august two unnamed elderly women became lost in the fog on mount meissen the 61 year old was from nagoya and the 69 year old was from ichinomiya luckily the women had submitted a climbing notification to tenkawa village before beginning their hike always Always tell people where you're going, folks. It saves lives. Nobody plans to get lost. Things just happen. But don't be that person, okay? Sources state that the women began their journey at noon on August 4th and stayed at the lodge for the first night. The next morning, they left at 8 with intentions of being back in the village guesthouse that night. Thankfully, when the women missed their reservation, the proprietor alerted authorities. Police and the fire department launched their search on August 6th, and their efforts continued for five full days without success before the search was officially canceled. Any hopes of finding the women alive were long gone by the evening of August 13th, but that's when the police received a shocking call. At 6.30, one of the women reached out for help. She was alone on a mountain ridge, having left her friend behind in a desperate attempt to hike back to the village. Luckily, she found reception first. 
authorities were able to pinpoint her location with GPS, and on that morning of August 14th, 12 hours after the phone call, she was found over three and a half miles south of Tenkawa Village. Three hours later, the other woman was also found and rescued nearby. In an interview, the Nagoya woman stated that they were on their way down the mountain when they became lost in a thick fog. They happened upon a structure with a roof where they took shelter and built a fire. They were able to stay hydrated with water from a nearby stream, and they rationed their snack foods as well as they could. But their food supply inevitably ran low. That's why she resumed walking on the morning of August 13th while her friend stayed behind due to exhaustion. She knew that they would both die slow, painful deaths if she did not find a way to call out for help. Relying on her phone's compass and a downloaded map, she had started heading north in the direction of Tenkawa Village. When she was finally able to dial emergency services, her battery was on 20%. The interview ends with a quote from the woman stating, I feel bad about causing trouble to a lot of people. I should have had the courage to turn back along the way. The important thing is, is that both women survived and with only minor cuts and scrapes. When you hear two elderly women were stranded in the wilderness for 10 days, you expect a fairly tragic ending. Well, I guess that does it for this case too. Are you ready for a bonus topic though? Because we have a little bit more to talk about. The Evaporated People It's time to discuss those evaporated people I was telling you about. Lena Mager, a French journalist, wrote a book about the phenomenon. It's called The Vanished, and it's used as a source for many articles discussing the situation, including a Time magazine article from May 2017 that I found absolutely fascinating. It said each year, nearly 100,000 Japanese citizens vanish without a trace, and because this number will come into question, I wanted to check that number with additional sources. The Missing Persons Search Support Association of Japan is a non-profit organization that provides support to the families of evaporated people. The organization's website claims the actual unregistered number is estimated at several times 100,000. Now, moving on. American and Japanese culture are vastly different from one another in so many obvious ways that it's easy to overlook some of the, let's say, hidden consequences of those differences. Due to their tendency to be so polite and proper, the Japanese can come across as an overall happy and well-composed and successful society, but that's simply not the case. I mean, in a lot of cases, it is, but by no means can it be used to describe them as a whole. Many people suffer from depression and crack under the pressure of life, just like the rest of us. They too are susceptible to things like addiction, mental illness, and debt. The major difference is how their society perceives what many would consider to be quote-unquote failure, whereas we may label similar situations as just going through a rough patch. They may very well see it as something more akin to the end of one's life. The pressure to maintain a strict facade can carry a crushing weight that all of us probably can relate to in one way or another. Takahiko Kariya is a professor at the Sociology of Japanese Society at Oxford University's Nissan Institute. He explained that even though people do go missing in every country, there are factors that make the evaporated people phenomenon more likely to occur in Japan. In the last couple of decades, schools have begun to nurture creativity and individual expression while the social structuring of the workplace has remained relatively unchanged. 
Basically, this means graduates are in for a rude awakening when they enter the real world and are expected to conform to a corporate ideal. Apparently, it's fairly standard for most employees to work 80 hours a week, and their vacation time has been on a steady decline. Now, you might think, so what? Quit and find a better job. But they can't even do that, really. It is considered shameful to quit one's company. Sometimes, it's literally easier to fake your own death and start over anew than it is to face a feeling of such shame and humiliation. Those who are successful are often called the nameless. Of course, part of the reason they are said to be successful is that they have formed their own subculture. Lena Mager is quoted as saying, It's something you can't really talk about, but people can disappear because there's another society underneath Japan's society. The article goes on to tell of a story of a man called Nori Hiro. He was fired from his engineering job, but too ashamed to tell his family. Every morning, he continued to wake up and perform his daily routines, all the way down to kissing his wife goodbye and driving off in the direction of his old office. The only problem is, is he had nowhere to go. Instead, he was forced to sit in his car and wait out the clock, stewing over his regrets. Sometimes, he even stayed late so his family would think he went out drinking with colleagues. You've probably already spotted why this was not suitable for a long-term solution. Soon, Nori Hiro ran low on funding and he could not afford to maintain the charade any longer. His only options were to come clean and face the music or to simply vanish. Clearly, he chose the latter or we wouldn't be talking about him today. But where did he go exactly? Now, it is said there is a place so secretive and shameful that it's been scrubbed from Tokyo's maps and that place is called... Sanya. Mogger states that taxi drivers avoid the neighborhood entirely because it's known that only the nameless go there. That being said, it's only fair to report both sides of the story. There are plenty of locals of this area, and they find Mogger's research to be unbelievable. Journalists have called it Tokyo's coolest ghetto. While it was indeed removed from the maps in 1966, the official reason has nothing to do with shame. Its boundaries were merely incorporated into the surrounding districts, which is a fairly common practice all over the world. Today, the area mostly consists of cheap rooms and budget restaurants. Or maybe that's just what they want us to think. Remember, when I said that the number of people that vanish each year would be called into question, Japan's National Police Agency registered about 82,000 missing persons in 2015, with roughly 80,000 being found by the end of the year. Only 23,000 of those were missing for more than a week, and 4,100 of them were found dead. Well, if there's one thing we do have in common with Japanese culture, it's that our conspiracy theories run deep. I assure you, though, there's enough material for each side of the argument to have its own series of books. But that's not what today's episode is really about. I just wanted to give you a peek into a fascinating topic that I found while I was just kind of looking around for other stories to cover. And I thought that this would be a phenomenon that you all would love to hear about since you seem to like the missing 401 North American phenomenon. Before we wrap this up, there's one more issue the Time article discussed that I want to make sure isn't confused with the supposed evaporated people phenomenon. There is a very real, very serious danger for women facing domestic abuse. Even in our society, it can be incredibly difficult for some women, and even men, to escape an abusive relationship. But the only way to truly convey what it's like in Japan is to tell you about a woman named Miho Saita. She is the CEO of the Yaningaya TS Corporation, and she helps victims of domestic violence to disappear. Her work and the people that she helps should not be confused with the evaporated people theories. 
She does not help anyone who is evading law enforcement or involved in illegal activities. What she will do, however, is make sure her clients are more difficult to track down by using a few simple methods such as redirecting mail to a red herring address or creating dummy cell phone contacts. If they're dealing with a stalker, the company will also sweep the house and cars for any tracking devices or bugs. Japan didn't enact its first law against domestic violence until 2001. In 2015, statistics showed one in four women still suffered from spousal abuse, but some experts argued the numbers were actually far higher. Almost all of Saita's clients come to her after the police fail to act. It's such a common problem that there are books one can purchase to literally have a guide that tells them how to literally disappear on their own and how to be unfindable, basically, and even like ways to afford professional assistance and stuff. It's actually kind of sad. More than two decades ago, Saito was forced to escape her own abusive marriage. At the time, she was managing several restaurants, and the police were not allowed to even ask more than a few questions to her abuser. So, obviously, she had to do something. And 99.9% .9 of the time, having the police come say, Hey, don't do that no more, brother, is not really going to help out. So eventually, Saita had enough. She took her car and her dog and disappeared. Her struggle inspired her to help other victims of domestic violence escape their own abusive households. And that's how she found her very own company. Each case varies, but depending on how far someone needs to flee and with how much stuff, it can take anything from a few people to an entire crew with moving trucks coming through in the dead of night. At the time of this interview, Saita estimated helping anywhere between 100 and 150 people vanish each and every year. You go, girl. Thank you for your service. And honestly, can't believe that we even have to have this type of stuff in this world. But it is what it is. I do have one more longer case I am going to jump into. I have covered it on the channel before. If you are a very hardcore viewer, you may remember it. But many people are not familiar with it and didn't see that episode. So I'm going to add it on here so you guys can learn a bit more about Japan's missing 411 phenomenon. This one occurred in the Daisetsuzen National Park, established in December 1934 in the mountainous center of Japan's northern Hokkaido. It's the largest national park in Japan. Its name translates to the Great Snowy Mountains. Before we dive into our actual topic, I want to share an exciting piece of information I discovered in my research. According to a local article, the people of Hokkaido have long revered the Daisetsuzen Mountains as a sacred place. In their native language, it's called Natap Kamui Sur, which means the mountains towering over the great wetlands. But due to its diverse wildlife and breathtaking views, it is also known by the more affectionate name of God's Playground. A stretch of the park extends across the outer limit of a town called B.A., which is well known for its famous rolling hills. These were created many millions of years ago when the mountains violently erupted leaving behind volcanic deposits that cooled to form their current scenery. Some of these peaks are still active volcanoes today, such as the one we'll discuss in this episode, Mount Asahidaki, which stands just over 7,500 feet tall, making it the tallest of all 16 peaks. It's located at the park's northern end and features a beautiful hiking trail that is arguably one of the most popular tourist attractions in Daisetsuzen. People travel from all over the world to make this trek, and it's easy to see why. Along the way, landmarks are used as guides. When hikers pass one, it offers reassurance that they are heading in the right direction. 
The most important of these landmarks is a large boulder named Safe Rock. Its name comes from its resemblance to a safe or a vault, but this landmark has a deadly twin. In the same area sits a second, nearly identical boulder dubbed as False Safe Rock. If someone mistakes it for the real landmark, they will find themselves on a seemingly correct path until realizing they're moving downhill into a swampy valley overgrown with tall, thick bamboo. Once inside, everything is so dense that it becomes difficult to see, and not everyone finds their way back out. The story we're covering today involves multiple lost hikers and a mysterious SOS signal. Everyone knows about SOS signals, right? Just in case you do not, it's a universal code for help. No matter where you are in the world, you can communicate that you're in distress with three simple letters. It may sound pretty straightforward, and usually it is, but I promise this time is a bit different. Just settle in and get ready for a lot of twists and turns. To fully appreciate the mystery of the SOS incident, we'll need to begin our story in 1989. Two hikers went missing on Mount Asahidake, Assuming they followed the wrong trail from False Safe Rock, a police helicopter led the search for the missing men on July 24th. There was no trace of the hikers until just before nightfall when rescuers suddenly spotted a strange SOS sign. Astonishingly, it was made from 19 birch trees that were cut and stacked together, each just over 16 feet long and just under 10 feet wide. They were also placed in a clearing far from the nearest birch trees. Can you imagine what it would take to put something like this together? Seriously, just think about it for just a rational second. It's a relatively important part of the case that will ultimately play a significant role in determining which side you choose. According to online sources and Wikipedia, the searchers quickly turned back to land, and while there, there was still no sign of the missing hikers. At first, though hungry and dehydrated, they had no severe injuries and were none the worse for wear especially considering their circumstances. They were given food and water on the way to the hospital where they could fully recover. When officers later praised them for making such a clever SOS sign, without which they indeed would not have been found, the hikers had no clue what they were actually talking about. This was completely unexpected. If they had not made the sign, then that begs the obvious question, who the heck did? I want to note here that some accounts vary as to whether or not this conversation happened in the helicopter or while the two men recovered in the hospital. The details are a little bit lost in translation, so I do apologize. Regardless, it was quickly confirmed that the rescued hikers had not, in fact, made the SOS sign. They weren't even aware that it had existed. Then came the chilling realization that if these two hikers had not made the sign, someone else clearly had someone who is still down there, potentially needing help. Before we move on to the next search, can we take a moment to appreciate what an insane stroke of luck this was for our two missing hikers who did make it out alive though. Without even knowing the sign was there, they just happened to be close enough to reach the investigating rescuers, and had anything gone differently that day, it's possible the sign wouldn't have been discovered at all. Don't forget, they only found it just before nightfall. Given the late hour, the search party could not return until the following morning, but it was back in full force at daybreak. Kenji Iwamura The SOS sign was located two and a half miles away from the peak of Asahidake, and an extensive search of the area was conducted. 
It wasn't long before a gruesome discovery was made as the authorities began collecting bones scattered around the sign. They were old, broken, and bore traces of animal bites, some of which may have occurred while the victim was even still living. Then, in a separate area, but still within a few hundred feet of the sign, police discovered a hole just large enough to fit a single person inside. It contained an unusual assortment of items, such as amulets, a human skull, a tripod, two cameras, a notebook, and a pair of men's basketball shoes. But the most important discoveries were concealed within a backpack. They were a tape recorder with four cassettes and a driver's license belonging to Kenji, a 25-year-old office worker from Aichi Prefecture, and had been missing since July 10, 1984. Kenji had set out on his own hike up Mount Asahidake, but when he failed to appear for work a week later, his parents reported him as missing. Unfortunately, no trace of Kenji was ever found until this discovery, five years later. At first, the cassette tapes seemed to feature nothing more than theme songs of the time's popular anime, but once listening, the authorities made another unbelievable discovery. Kenji recorded a final message over part of one of the tape's original contents, a statement in which he desperately begs for help that will never arrive. Even though the message was recorded in Japanese, the man's panic and desperation transcends any language barrier. The original clip is said to be over two minutes long, but the part of the message that translates to, I'm on a cliff and can't move. SOS, help me. I'm at the spot where I first saw the helicopter. The bamboo grass is too deep and I can't go anywhere. Please lift me from here. Now, considering the message specifically said SOS, you may presume he was the one to create the sign, and maybe he was. But this theory has several problems. First, however, we'll get through the official story, and then we'll break down all of the discrepancies at the end. Before we move on, though, I will play a quick snippet of the part that I just translated for you so you can hear the actual desperation yourself in the voice. As for the human remains, the skull seemed to fit with the bones found earlier in the day, and everything was transferred to Asahikawa Medical University for examination. Honestly, this was just protocol at that point. The apparent conclusion is that the remains belonged to Kenji, and again, maybe they do, but initially medical reports determined it would be a woman between the age of 20 to 40 years old with type O blood. These findings would only be corrected when this incident began to attract the wrong kind of attention. In the days it took to reach this conclusion, the world fell in love with the story. Everyone followed it closely, hanging on to every detail. The sheer ingenuity behind the sign was impressive enough. I mean, experts estimated it would take at least two days and considerably more effort than a weak, possibly starving man would have. But that's one of the things we'll come back to. Authorities were able to confirm Kenji owned specific items in the backpack, such as the anime cassette tapes and that he wore the same size shoes as the ones found in the hall. It's understandable how one would conclude that these remains belonged to Kenji, but when those results came back and suddenly it was much more difficult to accept that this was a neatly closed case. Investigators wanted to believe there were two men and a woman involved, but there was no record of a missing female and Kenji was known to be alone when he ventured up the mountain. Plus, if he had met someone along the way, 
Doesn't it seem likely he would have indicated others were also in need of rescue when he was recording the request to be airlifted off the cliff? Many were beginning to feel that Kenji's mention of the SOS was more likely to be a coincidence. We'll probably never know for sure. But these questions led to a great confusion in the investigation and the media coverage. The more Japanese officials insisted the case was solved, the more backlash they would initially receive. Now we're going to move on to some more conspiracy-filled theories, since all the information we actually have is kind of dried up at this point. To the world's great surprise, on February 28, 1990, the Asahikawa East Police Station announced a complete re-examination of the remains had been performed and new findings concluded they belonged to a male with type A blood, or in other words, Kenji. Make of that what you will. It feels a bit, um, suspicious to me. The Japanese aren't exactly known for being open and honest with their investigations, but it's only fair to hear both sides. And a Reed Cash article does report that mistakes on such a grand scale can happen often enough in medical universities. At the very least, it's not impossible, you know? So let's take a closer look at the sign itself instead. Today, this story is considered one of the more excellent internet mystery classics. And the ingenuity behind the sign is one of the main reasons that people are so obsessed with this. When it was constructed, the only thing we can say for certain is that the Japan Forest Agency and the Japan Geographical Authority checked previous aerial photos taken in September 1987. They could confirm the sign was already there. They also studied records from 1982, but these photographs lacked the enormous SOS signal. Experts estimated it was likely at least two days and significantly more energy than a weak, possibly starving man would even possess. Each of the 19 logs seemed to have been cut with an axe, yet no axe or any such cutting tool has ever been recovered from the site. Does that mean one doesn't exist? No, of course not. But the area has been thoroughly searched on multiple occasions. Oddly, it would be the only item to remain lost. Plus, don't forget how big the logs themselves were. 16 feet long and 10 feet wide sections of birch tree must weigh several hundred pounds, maybe closer to a thousand if you want to be realistic. I find it challenging to believe Kenji would be able to drag such sections of wood into the clearing, especially when the autopsy report specifically described him as very frail. It would have been quite literally impossible for him to do alone. As for why Kenji would specifically mention SOS in the recording, one interesting observation made by anime fans is that Usamu Tezuka's Astro Boy features a famous scene in which fallen trees are arranged into the shape of an SOS, or perhaps, unlike the two missing hikers, Kenji had previously seen the enormous sign, and it was simply on his mind. Either way, it's widely accepted that he recorded these messages intending to play them back for rescuers should he be discovered after becoming too debilitated to speak. Now, assumably, batteries would last longer than your own lung capacity. Those who disagree with this theory do believe the tape recorder was switched on by accident while the man was screaming for help. But I disagree. His message was exact, as it's giving somebody a specific instruction. It's not mindless cries for help. Of course, some question whether the man in the recording is Kenji or not as well. When his parents heard the recording, they could not confirm it was their son's voice. Is it because it wasn't their son, or is it because grieving parents have a hard time accepting the loss of a child? It's also worth noting that the sound quality of the cassette tape isn't exactly what we're used to hearing today. 
while yes, the cassettes were in pretty good condition and played rather fine, there's only so much a cassette recorder can do for a desperate, panicked man trying to record what he knows may be his last message. Furthermore, according to Kenji, he was trapped atop a cliff, needing to be airlifted out, but yet his bones were discovered out in the open. It's speculated he eventually reached a point where he simply wanted to descend the mountain any way possible, but when he climbed down to this last cliffside, he could not proceed any further or turn back. However, this argument is often met with the fact that Kenji could have easily changed his mind after recording the message. Eventually, he would have accepted the helicopter wasn't returning, and at that point he may have become desperate enough to continue his descent. Though this leaves us with even more questions. Would he have had enough energy to undertake such a task and constructing that sign? Primarily, if the climb down was responsible for his fractured bones, one fracture was found on a leg bone and the other was in his upper body. With all that said, that's still not the end of it. What about Mother Nature herself? We know this sign already existed in September of 1987, but how long can something like that sit out in the open elements without suffering overgrowth? How can it endure the extreme mountain weather conditions of heavy snow and rain yet still be perfectly visible for such an extended period? Investigators only stated that the logs looked too old and were partially submerged in mud. Is it more likely that someone constructed the sign after Kenji's death but before the two missing hikers in 1989? Because there are still plenty who believe Kenji is still responsible despite these contradictions. And unfortunately with that, there's not too much more I can cover without kind of running in circles and just covering theories that kind of are based off other theories and, you know, I don't want to waste our time. So with that, what do you guys think is going on here? Maybe it's not the pretty staggering evidence that it seems to be at first glance. What do you think? Did Kenji make the sign? Or did someone come along after him? Did bones belonging to... Did the bones actually belong to a missing woman? Or are they actually Kenji's? Were Kenji's bones never found? Could those body parts be less of a match than we thought? Did the medical university receive two different results based on which bone was tested? Let's hope the mistakes weren't taken that far, right? Seriously, this was actually a very fascinating case to research, and I highly recommend viewing the articles for yourself if you want to learn more. But first, you have to let me know what you think in the comments. Shrek will be angry if you don't, of course. We gotta stay safe out here in these swampy streets. While you're at it, be sure to slap that like button, be sure to subscribe if you're new, and turn on notifications as I upload brand new videos nearly every day on cases just like this.